Have you ever completely ruined somebody's day without even trying to? I have. It was at the wedding reception of a friend. I'd not taken the wedding, not been involved in it from the front at all, just been in the congregation. And at the reception, I looked at the seating plan and went and sat down at the table that I'd been put on and the guy sitting next to me introduced himself, stuck out his hand. Hello, I'm Neil. I work in insurance. And I replied, hello, Neil. I'm Paul. I'm a vicar. And instantly his face dropped. See, poor Neil, I'd ruined his day without even trying to. This was a day he thought he was going to enjoy. He'd had the bad luck then of finding himself sitting next to the vicar and not being able to move for the whole of the reception. And he thought the religious bit was over. But all credit to the bloke, he was going to make the most of this rather unfortunate situation, so he came right out with his best shot. The first thing he said to me was, I'm Neil. The second was, OK, vicar, why do you believe the Bible when it's full of contradictions? Clearly the gloves were off. So I whipped out my pocket Bible and said, well, Neil, show me one and we'll talk about it. I'm not usually quite that confrontational, but we had a terrific conversation. Uh, It was uh, just after we'd finished the profiteroles and were anticipating the uh, coffee and chocolate mints when Neil admitted that he hadn't even read one of these 66 books in the Bible. But he'd heard somewhere that the Bible was full of contradictions. It's one of those urban myths. Uh, Read a book like uh, uh, Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code and you'll hear it. Dan Brown would have us believe that the Bible is thoroughly unreliable. If you've read it, you'll know. He says that Christians have fixed what's in the Bible, leaving out anything that doesn't suit them. See, it seems the the Bible is a book that even those who've never read it have an opinion about it. I wonder why that is. Now, this evening we want to ask whether we can trust the Bible or not. Is it just a bunch of made-up stories? Has it been embellished by the uh, disciples of Jesus? Has the later church decided what it's really meant to be in it or not? How do we know the Bible's true? Now, if you're here this evening and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, by the end of the evening, I hope you'll be able to see that you don't have to commit intellectual suicide to trust the Bible. If you are a Christian, let me ask you, why do you trust the Bible? Let me ask you this, if you're a Christian, are you able to explain to others why you believe the Bible is a reliable book? See, sadly, I've heard too many people who've been Christians for many years floundering when it comes to this question. Good on them, they've got into conversation with their friends, but then their friends have asked them how they can believe in the Bible and they don't really know what to say. And they've been Christians for a long time. Well, hopefully by the end of this evening, if you're in that boat, you'll be able to have a little, a better idea about how to answer this question. Now, I don't know whether you like these things. We've got a, a handout. They're getting bigger. By next week, we'll probably have a book to hand out, but it's an A4 sheet. And uh, if you like these things, then uh, do uh, take a hold of that. You can see where we're going. There's a quote or two on there as well, which I'll quote from, and uh, that might be handy for you. If not, you can just um, use it for something else later, starting a fire, something like that. Um, Sorry, I probably shouldn't have said that. It's not in the notes. I'll stick to the notes from now on. The first point you'll see on the handout there, the Bible is historically accurate. That's why we believe the Bible, trust the Bible. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, the first of those two readings that Cynthia read for us. Page 1025 is the page number in the church Bibles. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. 
Now you'll see as you turn uh, to those verses, verses 1 to 4 of Luke 1, that Luke wants us to know that we can trust this document. In verse 2, he says that he's interviewed eyewitnesses. In verse 3, he says he's carefully investigated all that's been seen and heard and said. And he's written down his findings so that, verse 4, we may know about the certainty of the things taught about Jesus. And because Luke is a a serious historian, he's keen to show us that the events recorded in this document are rooted in history. Just flip over a page to chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, chapter 2, verse 1, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, do you see how significant that is? This is not once upon a time in a land far away. Uh, Bedtime in our household is quite an event. It follows bath time where, despite all my best efforts, our three children, six-year-old twins, Susanna and Bethan, and four-year-old Joshua, have usually soaked the bath mats and left me looking as if I'd climbed into the bath with them fully clothed. Well, after all the excitement of bath time, we settled down for story time. In the last six years, I reckon I've read in excess of 2,200 children's stories. I don't know why I bothered to work that out, but anyway, I did. (laughs) And so I know a thing or two about fairy stories, and you do too, I'm sure. They all begin in the same way. Once upon a time in a land far away. I can feel my eyes drooping now, even as I say it. (laughs) Once upon a time, once upon a time, at a time when we can't determine, in a land that has no geographical setting, that is the world of make-believe. Luke does exactly the opposite. It's not once upon a time, but chapter 2, verse 1, when the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. In other words, you can get the history books and you can check this out. And in the same verse, he doesn't write in a land far away, but you see it there in verse 2, in the Roman world. Luke tells us that we can root this account of Jesus' life in history. We can check this out with other historical documents. We can be sure that this really happened at a real time, in a real place, to real people. And then he does exactly the same at the beginning of his third chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, if you just flip over a page. Now, this is the sort of reading that we usually read at Christmas time, and if ever you get asked over the telephone by somebody in the office to read Luke chapter 3, verse 1, before you say yes, have a look at it. It's a disaster to read, but it's very important. I'm going to do my best. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Traconitus, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, I'm going to stop there. It's going so well. Do you see the point? Why does Luke give us so much detail? He wants to assure his readers that what he writes is reliable and historical. And other Bible writers do the same. I put the handout, uh, the references on the handout for you to chase up later. I won't read them all out now. And because the New Testament documents were written so soon after the events, it would have been easy for any opponents of Christianity to highlight the errors. Now look, again, I put this quote. It's a long quote, but I think it's really worthwhile. It's on your sheet. Listen to F.F. Bruce on this issue. It was not friendly eyewitnesses that the early preachers had to reckon with. There were others less well disposed who were also conversant with the main facts of the ministry and death of Jesus. The disciples could not afford to risk inaccuracies, not to speak of willful manipulation of the facts, which would at once be exposed by those who would be only too glad to do so. 
On the contrary, one of the strong points in the original preaching is the confident appeal to the knowledge of the hearers. They not only said, we are witnesses of these things, but also, as you yourselves know, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Had there been any tendency to depart from the facts in any material respect, the possible pressure of hostile witnesses in the audience would have served as a further corrective. Well, why do we trust the Bible then? Well, firstly, because the Bible is historically accurate. Secondly, the Bible is internally consistent. See, pick up a Bible and maybe you've got one in your hand. Technically, you're not holding just one book, but a library of books. A library of 66 books, written over a time span of 1,500 years by 40 different authors who lived on three different continents of the world, Asia, Africa and Europe. Writers who came from every walk of life, kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen. Written by so many then, who live so far apart geographically, socially and chronologically and yet it has a unifying message from the first page to the last. It is remarkable that the Bible is internally consistent. Even when it deals with controversial subjects, it has a harmony and coherence about it that is extraordinary. But then you see people who want to suggest that it's full of contradictions wouldn't know that because usually they've never read it. But the internal consistency of the Bible blows that fable out of the water. Now here's a question for you. If you're a Christian here this evening, could you demonstrate in any way at all how the internal consistency of the Bible holds together? Are you able to give an overview of the Bible? Could you say what the big message of the Bible is in a few sentences? And could you demonstrate the internal consistency of the Bible to those who question you on the reliability of the Bible? I find it staggering that many Christians haven't even read the Bible all the way through. Now look, if you've only been a Christian for a short time, please don't feel guilty about this at all. But look, if you've been a Christian for years, how can you expect to know that it is internally consistent if you haven't even read it? Many Christians haven't even read their New Testaments. If you are a Christian, let me challenge you to read through the whole Bible. You might not be able to do it in a year, do it in a couple, but... Start doing it, for goodness sake. And let me also challenge you to get to grips with a Bible overview. I I mean, I don't know where to start with this. We could suggest the Moore College course, an introduction to the Bible. If you don't know how to get hold of that, speak to Andrew or or me afterwards. Uh, I can suggest this book, Graham Goldsworthy book, According to Plan. When I read that, it was very helpful for me as I began to understand how the whole Bible fit together. Well, one way to demonstrate the internal consistency of the Bible is to see the way the New Testament quotes the Old. As you're reading through, just see that. See how often the Old Testament is quoted. And not least of all, in demonstrating the fulfilment of prophecy. The Old Testament, that part of the Bible written before Jesus, the Old Testament contains 332 references to the Messiah that are fulfilled in Jesus. Now, someone worked out the probability of those prophecies, those 332 prophecies, being fulfilled in one man as being 1 in 84 to the power of 97. That is 1 in 84 with 97 zeros after it. I don't know how you say that number, so I've got somebody in the office to uh, do it. That is how big that number is. If anybody knows how to say that number afterwards, they can tell me. That is a big number, isn't it? I don't know who on earth had the time to work that out 
and I have no idea of knowing whether it's true or not, but it's a big number all the same. Uh, But there's a thought. The chance of the 332 prophecies of Jesus being fulfilled in one man, that is the probability. Now let's just look at one passage in the Old Testament and we'll see how it was fulfilled in Jesus. It's on your, uh, on your handout, to Psalm 22, page 554. Now this was written about a thousand years before Jesus and before crucifixion was invented, uh, because it was before the Romans. Uh, Yet listen to how well it describes Jesus' death. Psalm 22, page 554, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words that are familiar, they are words that Jesus said on the cross. Well, that doesn't prove anything. Anybody could say those words on the cross. That wouldn't uh, necessarily mean fulfilment of prophecy. But look down to verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Exactly the words of the crowd who watched Jesus dying and those words are recorded in Matthew 27 verse 43. Look at verse 16. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. That was true of Jesus. This was written a thousand years before crucifixion was invented. Verse 17. I can count all my bones. Do you remember the story of the crucifixion? John tells us in chapter 19, verse 33, that Jesus' legs were not broken, unlike both those who were crucified with him, either side of him. Verse 18, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. The soldiers did that, as you know, at the foot of the cross, and that's recorded in John chapter 19, verse 24. Now we just look quickly at one chapter but throughout the Old Testament details about the Messiah written hundreds of years before Jesus came true in Jesus. The internal consistency of the Bible is is quite remarkable. Firstly, the Bible is historically accurate. Second, the Bible is internally consistent. Third, the Bible is God-inspired. Now here actually is why Christians trust this book because it is inspired by God. Now, please make a note of this word, inspired. I told you to make a note of a word last week. This is the word I'd love you to hold on to. If you remember nothing else, remember the word, inspired. The Bible is the inspired word of God. But please don't misunderstand what this word, inspired, means. You see, if you were having a good day and you went for a walk out in the Peak District and you suddenly saw the flowers and the trees, you might be inspired to write wonderful poetry. I never would, I've never been like that, but you might be. You might be inspired to write wonderful poetry because of what you see around you. But that's not the way the Bible writers were inspired. That's not what it means at all. It's not that they thought about God and and found themselves writing wonderful things. That's not it. No, 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is God-breathed. Literally, breathed out by God. So yes, human writers wrote the Bible... But God, the Holy Spirit, was superintending what they wrote. See, Christians believe that the Bible is not just a human book. It is a human book. It is written by people, but it is a divine book too. Uh, Lots of flicking around. I can't see any other way of doing this type of talk, so bear with me and come with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 12 and we'll see how it is both 
a human book and at the same time a divine book. Page 1018 is the page number 1018, Mark chapter 12, verse 36. And just see what Jesus said when he quoted one verse from the Old Testament. Are you with me? Page 1018, Mark chapter 12, verse 36. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, and so on. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit. Do you see, Jesus believed the Bible was written by men, David himself, but their writing was intended by the, superintended by God, uh, 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 speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared. Now we see that all the more as we look at our fourth point. First point, the Bible is historically accurate. Second, the Bible is internally consistent. Third, the Bible is God-inspired. Fourth, the Bible is Jesus-endorsed. You see, last week we saw that Jesus is none other than God himself. Now I'm not going to rerun that argument, of course. Uh, if you want to look, it, look into that and you weren't here, then you can get uh, copies of the CD uh, or, or look it up on the website. But if that's true, if Jesus is God, then how he approached the Bible tells us how we should approach the Bible. Let's see how Jesus handled or approached the Old Testament. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Page 969. Page 969. And here we'll see Jesus' approach to the Old Testament scriptures. Everything that was written before Jesus arrived that we have in our Bibles. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, which is shorthand for the whole of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, listen to this, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In the old King James version of the Bible, it reads, not a jot or a tittle will pass from the law. Some of you older folks will remember that. Not a jot or a tittle. Jots and tittles are marks in the Hebrew script. Do you remember learning French? Do you remember your, your schoolboy, schoolgirl French? I was hopeless at French. I was hopeless at everything. I was just particularly bad at French. But I do remember those little accents. What was there? There was the accent aigu and things like that, wasn't there? And you know, you put a little, little, little stroke of the pen. little stroke of the pen. There was a little one like a hat, wasn't there? I can't remember what that was called. Somebody will tell me afterwards. Can anybody remember what that was called? Ah, there we are. Circumflex, something like that. You see, I told you I was hopeless at French, but you're all very good. Now, do you remember those accents? Just a stroke of the pen. Little marks on the page that changed the way you pronounced the word. Now, in the Hebrew script, there are similar marks on a page called jots and tittles. Just a little stroke of the pen here and there, but strokes of the pen that not change the way you pronounce the word, but actually the meaning of the word. Oh, let me bring it into English. The closest I can think of is, think of the line that turns the letter O. Just one stroke of the pen can turn it into a Q. One stroke of a pen, a little mark on the page. And here is Jesus saying that in the Old Testament, he holds to every last stroke of the pen. 
We might say today, every full stop and comma, I believe every full stop and comma, that isn't quite the same, but it's almost that. Do you see what a high view of the Old Testament scriptures Jesus has? He believed the scriptures right down to the the slightest stroke of the pen. Now, if you're still with me, can I demonstrate that to you, uh, how Jesus did that, just just in one uh, one, uh, part of the Bible? Uh, another, uh, I'm going to say the last uh, cross-reference, it isn't I'm afraid, but turn with me to Mark 12 and page 1018. This is really worth seeing. Page 1018. Mark chapter 12 and verses 24 to 27. Now I, I expect when you see this for your socks to be blowing off all over the place. I expect socks to be, spiritual socks to be flying around this room as we look at Mark chapter 12. This will blow your socks off. I built it up now, better. Mark chapter 12, verse 24. Now here in Mark 12, Jesus is in debate with the Sadducees. They're religious leaders in Israel. And they are leaders who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believe when you die, you die, that's it. So they were real Jewish people who taught the Bible, but they didn't teach that when you died there was anything beyond death. And here is Jesus in Mark chapter 12 showing them from their own scriptures, from the Old Testament, that they are wrong about the resurrection, that there is a resurrection from the dead. Look what he says to them in verse 24. Jesus replies, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? And so in the verses that follow, Jesus is going to prove the resurrection of the dead from the Old Testament. Now before we look at these verses, let me ask you, where would you go to show from the Old Testament that the Old Testament teaches the resurrection of the dead. Where would you go? Jesus went back to Exodus chapter 3 and the account of Moses at the bush. And look what he says, verse 26. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now I wonder, when you look at that, do you see how that proves the resurrection of the dead? When God said these words to Moses, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had been dead for years. And yet, look very carefully, what does God say? God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Not, I was their God. I am now the God of the people who've been dead for years. So they must be alive. 4 verse 27, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now the reason we've seen that, done that little exposition, is that uh, now we can see the extent to which Jesus trusted the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus was prepared to hang a theology of the resurrection on the tense of a verb. Present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Not past tense, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Jesus believed the Old Testament down to the least stroke of a pen, even to the tense of the verb, and he would even base a whole theology on the tense of a verb. See how much he believed in it? Well, that was Jesus' approach to the Old Testament. What about Jesus' approach to the New Testament? Now, have you got your head screwed on tonight? Some of you will be saying to me, you can't possibly show me Jesus' approach to the New Testament when it wasn't even written until after his death, resurrection and ascension. Ah, stay with me. Come with me to John chapter 14, if you will. 
Jesus' approach to the New Testament. And if you're still with me, you've done very well, and we're almost there. Well done. John chapter 14, page 1083. Jesus is speaking here to to his disciples. That is clear from verse 25. You see, he says, All this I've spoken while still with you. He couldn't say that to you and me. He's speaking to his disciples, to the apostles. And what does he promise them, verse 26? But the counsellor... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. See, Jesus knew the Holy Spirit, God himself, would be behind the writing of the scriptures, reminding the disciples of all that Jesus taught them. The accuracy of this book, of the New Testament part now, is not down to the good memories of the disciples or that they were brought up in an oral tradition, even though that is true. The New Testament is accurate because the Holy Spirit reminded the apostles of Jesus' words. And look on to chapter 16, just over a page. Chapter 16 and verse 12. Again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Verse 12 of chapter 16. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he... The spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Not a promise for us, not a promise that we'd never get anything wrong, a promise for the disciples, for the apostles. Again, the promise is that the Holy Spirit, God himself, would guide them, lead them to write the truth. There's our confidence in the Bible. It is God-inspired. It is Jesus-endorsed. The Bible is historically accurate. The Bible is internally consistent. The Bible is God-inspired. The Bible is Jesus-endorsed. And finally, the Bible is self-authenticating. And it has to be that way. See, again, if you're still with me, I can imagine someone saying to me at this point, all you've done this evening is turn to the Bible to answer the question, how do you know the Bible's true? That's a circular argument, Mr. Preacher. That doesn't work. For the last 20 minutes you said the Bible can be trusted because the Bible says it can be trusted. What sort of argument is that? Now if you're thinking that and you are asking that question, I'm so pleased you're asking that question because that has been completely deliberate. Because for something to be a final authority, it cannot appeal to anything else to establish it or authenticate it as the final authority, or that thing will become the final authority. Let me illustrate what I'm saying to you uh, like this. If I say to you the Bible's the final authority because the Sunday Telegraph says it's the final authority, and I put the Sunday Telegraph over the authority of the Bible, at that point, the Sunday Telegraph becomes the final authority. Do you see? If I say to you, um, the Bible is authoritative because the Guinness Encyclopedia says that the Bible is authoritative. This is hard because it's heavy. At that point, if I say that to you, you I would have to say to you, well now, look, do you see where our final authority is? It's not the Bible, but it is the Guinness Encyclopedia. If I was to say to you, the Bible is authoritative because archaeology proves that it is authoritative, then at that point archaeology becomes the final authority. And if I was to say to you, the Bible is authoritative because reason, it is reasonable, then reason or science or whatever, whatever I put over and above the Bible, that thing becomes the final authority. So for anything to be a final authority, it must be by its own admission and by no other, other the final authority. 
Do you see the point? Wayne Gruden makes the point better than I. And I put his quote on the sheet. If an appeal to some higher authority, say historical accuracy or logical consistency, were used to prove that the Bible is God's word, then the Bible itself would not be our highest or absolute authority. And so this evening I've deliberately not turned to anything else to authenticate the claim that the Bible is the final authority, for it must be self-authenticating. Of course, if the Bible is the final authority, and it is true, then we can expect it to be consistent with history and archaeology and science and reason and so on. But the reason we trust the Bible, the reason we believe the Bible is the final authority is because it is self-authenticating. And it has to be. And wonderfully, you can test this out for yourselves by reading it and obeying it. Look, if you're an inquirer here tonight, I would love to give you a Bible before you leave this evening. I've got some by the door. I'll be standing at the door afterwards by that door over there. If you come past there and say, I'd like a Bible, I'll give you one. And, And if you like, I'll even show you where to start reading it and what questions to begin to ask of it. You can read it for yourselves to check it out. As you read it, there's one test that Jesus himself gives us and this is the final reference and it's a great verse to to, to look up. So do please come with me to John chapter 7, uh, verse 16. It's page 1072 uh, in the church Bibles. John chapter 7 and verse 16. Jesus said, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. Now how are we going to know that? Look what he says. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, do you want to check out that this book, my words, are really from God? Then obey them. Listen to them and put them into practice and you will see for yourselves that these words come from God. A friend of mine, Julie, put it like this. She said, the Bible explains the way the world works like no other worldview. It explains life and why the world is as it is and it works. As I live it, I discover it makes sense of life. Now, if you're an inquirer, please don't write the Bible off without reading it first. And Christian... Be confident the Bible can be trusted. As I said last week, you don't have to pull your brain out down through your nose and flush it down the toilet to be a Christian or indeed to trust this book. And next time you're at a wedding reception and someone asks you, why do you believe the Bible? Whip out this handout and go through the arguments with them. (laughs) Let's pray together.